This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Wa idha qila lahum ta'alu ila ma anzala Allah wa ila rasul qalu qalu hasbuna ma wajadna قالوا حسبنا ما وجدنا عليه آباءنا أولو كان آباؤهم لا يعلمون شيئا ولا يهتدون وإذا قيل لهم تعالوا إلى ما أنزل الله وإلى الرسول قالوا قالوا حسبنا ما وجدنا عليه آباءنا أولو كان آباؤهم لا يعلمون شيئا ولا يهتدون يا أيها الذين آمنوا عليكم أنفسكم لا يضركم من ضل إذا اهتديتم يا أيها الذين آمنوا عليكم أنفسكم لا يضركم من ضل إذا اهتديتم إلى الله مرجعكم جميعا فينبئكم بما كنتم تعملون رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقه قولي Dear brothers and sisters the ayat which i just recited subhanallah were actually the subject of a discussion that i was having with ustad nu'man as he was leaving right now he asked me what are you going to talk about right now and i told him that when i came to this convention i decided that all three of my talks would be one talk in essence what i started off with yesterday will continue until my last session tonight inshallah ta'ala along the same theme and on a consistent thought. And I told him that I'm going to talk about the ayah, the second ayah which I just recited to you. Ya amanu alaykum anfusakum la man Oh you who believe, worry about yourselves. Alaykum anfusakum. Worry about yourselves. You will not be harmed by those who have gone astray if you are amongst those who are guided. You shall all return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inform all of you of that which you used to do. And he told me, he said, that ayah, and wallahi, I'm not making this up. He said, that ayah has always posed problems for me. I've never been able to find a satisfactory answer to what that ayah means. And subhanAllah, interestingly enough, even the Sahaba had a difficult time understanding and applying this ayah in its proper context. This ayah is in Surah Al-Ma'idah, and I want to give you a long hadith, which is narrated by Qais ibn Abi Hazm, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, قَالَ قَامَ فِينَا أَبُوْ بَكْرِ He says, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu stood up to give us khutbah. I want you to imagine 
Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, not Nu'man Ali Khan, not Umar Sulaiman, not Mufti Mink, not Abdul Nasir Jangda, not Yasmin Mujahid, not, not Muhammad Abdul Jabbar, none of, the, none of the lecturers, not Muslim Khan, no, none of these people. I want you to imagine Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu ascends to give you a speech, to give you a khutbah. So he says that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu started off his khutbah in the way that we start off our lectures, praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and extolling him and declaring his perfection. Then he said, nas, O people, innakum I hear you reciting this ayah. Ya amanu alaykum anfusakum, la man O you who believe, worry about yourselves. You will not be harmed by those who have gone astray if you are amongst those who are guided. Wa inni But I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, munkar. لا يغيرونه أوشك أن يعمهم الله بعقابه. A very profound and scary hadith that the Prophet said, Verily, people, if they see munkar, if they see evil, لا يغيرونه and they do nothing to change it, أوشك أن يعمهم الله بعقابه. It may be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause His wrath to descend upon all of them. And so Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu is not illustrating a contradiction between a hadith and an ayah. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu is illustrating a contradiction between the way that an ayah is being recited and the way that an ayah is being interpreted and the way that an ayah is being taken out of context and a hadith of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu is pointing to a contradiction within us, a conflict within us. It's the narrative of Muslims who live in comfort and ease as they see what goes on around the world, as they see what happens to others around them. They recite this ayah, justifying their narrative, justifying their passiveness, that you know what, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has only commanded me to worry about myself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not commissioned me to worry about the things that go around me. Yes, da'wah is praiseworthy. Yes, speaking up is praiseworthy. But it is not an obligation upon the believer. Ironically, earlier on in the surah, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and, and anyone who's read Surah Al-Ma'idah, everyone's read Surah Al-Ma'idah, but anyone who memorizes it, can immediately point out the frequent mention, Ya ayyuhal nas, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu, Ya ayyuhal rasul. Frequently in this surah, Allah says, O people, O you who believe, O Messenger of Allah. And, and subhanAllah, it's repeated over and over and over within the surah. Earlier on in the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu kunu qawamina lillah shuhada bil khist. O you who believe, be amongst those who stand firm in their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and bearing witness to justice, standing firm for justice. Earlier on in the surah, but here Allah Azza wa Jal says, Worry about yourselves. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu is having to point out to even a group of Sahaba. This is within two years of the death of the Prophet 
that you are not understanding this ayah properly. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not given you a religion where all you have to do is pray and worry about yourself and be a good family man, be a good husband, be a good wife, and not, not worry about the world around you. Allah has not given you a religion like that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in fact, He says, كُنْتُمْ خَيْرَ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ You were the best nation ever produced for mankind because you enjoin good and forbid evil while believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, أَمَّا النَّهِي عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ As for forbidding evil, it's far harder than enjoining good. You know, enjoining good, people generally speaking, will be far more receptive to a message of, you need to volunteer more, you need to give more charity, you need to go out and, and, you know, and do good things, you need to be a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father. People are generally far more receptive to those messages than you need to not do this. You need to abandon sin. You need to do away with this custom in your community which is from al-bid'ah or from a, a, a form of innovation or a form of sin. You need to do away with that which brings hardship upon your family and upon the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. People are not very receptive to that. No one likes to be called out. No one likes to be told that they're doing anything wrong. That's when your ego really kicks in. That's when your arrogance really kicks in. You know, subhanAllah, you'll find as Imam al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, أَعْمَالُ الْبِرِّيَ فَعَلُهَا الْبَرُّ وَالْفَاجِرُ He says, when it comes to good deeds, both an evil person and a righteous person are capable of doing good deeds. But no one abandons sin unless they're truthful with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's far harder to make sacrifices in your life and to make commitments than to be told, do some extra good deeds. Because good deeds naturally make a person feel good. They naturally resonate with the people. And so Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said that if you look at the lives of the Anbiya, the lives of the Prophets, when they called people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the vast majority of their message was nahi anil munka, was abandon your evil. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam does not come to his society and say to his society, just give more charity and be nicer people. The Prophet ﷺ calls them out on their social ills. He calls them out on their injustices. And subhanAllah, this, this strange ideology, this, this, this attempt to turn our faith, to reduce our faith to what modern day Christianity has become, like Ustad Nu'man was talking about yesterday, to Christianize our faith, where it becomes a faith of rituals, a faith of theology, a faith of, of prayer, but not a faith that calls people out on their dhulm, calls people out on their injustices. This attempt is growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you look at the very early revelations in the Qur'an, you find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as He was teaching the people, calling the people to tawheed, to monotheism, and belief in Allah, and belief in the hereafter, and belief in the message, the very early ayat, وَإِذَا الْمَوْعُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ When that young girl that you buried alive is asked, for what crime was she killed? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns the people who cheat with their weights, right? Very, very early on. What's the name of the surah? Wailun lil 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns people who cheat in their businesses. Allah speaks against economic injustices. In Makki Quran, very early on in the message, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings it home. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very early on warns people about repelling the orphans, about being arrogant, about treating people like they are less than them. Meaning our theology is one that is ingrained with social justice at the very root of it. At the very core of it, it's one that addresses those issues. It's one that calls people out on their evils. So when we talk about an Islam that is devoid of any political rhetoric, an Islam that allows people to live their lifestyles in any way that they want to, as long as they cry and celebrate the birthday of the Prophet And no, I'm not. This is not an anti-Mawlid talk. There is a genuine ikhtilaf amongst the ulama and you know about marking the day of the of the birth of the Prophet ﷺ to remember the Prophet ﷺ. There's a genuine ikhtilaf. I'm not criticizing people like Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala or people that held that opinion that it was okay to mark that date. But what I'm saying is that the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they didn't need that. Because every single day was a mawlid to the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Every single day was a celebration of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. They did not simply have an emotional attachment to the Prophet ﷺ that was devoid of actually following the Prophet ﷺ. So it's not about getting together once a year and building an amazing cake and crying over the mention of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's part of our religion to have that emotional attachment to the Prophet sallallahu But what Allah subhanahu wa taala demands from us is to follow Him. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبُكُمُ اللَّهِ. Allah Azawajal says in the Quran, say if you love Allah. Say to them, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in kuntum tuhibboon Allah, if you really love Allah, not fa'ahibbooni, so love me, yuhbibkum Allah, and Allah will love you back. Fattabi'uni, follow my example, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will love you back. Allah azza wa jal made al-ittiba' made following the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the means by which we gain his love, not merely expressing love for the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's a part of our religion, it's a part of our faith, but we are not people that just remember the Prophet ﷺ and romanticize his seerah and, and neglect the parts of the seerah where the Prophet ﷺ got mad. Because you know what? The Prophet ﷺ got angry. The Prophet ﷺ, he stood against injustice in his society. The Prophet ﷺ was anything but a pacifist in his society. In fact, even before prophethood, the Prophet ﷺ would not tolerate dhulm in his presence. He was the youngest man ﷺ that stood on the day of Al-Hilf Al-Fudul, the day of the League of the Virtuous, when they came together to establish the economic rights of each and every single member of that society. Ironically, subhanAllah, that came about because a foreigner came to Mecca and he was wrong and he wrote a long poem about how the people of Mecca think that they're absolved, how they think that because the Kaaba is in their possession, or they think it's in their possession. How the Kaaba is amongst them, they can wrong people. And you know what, when you go to Mecca today, what do you see outside of those big buildings? What do you see behind that clock tower? What do you see only a few feet away from the cloth of the Kaaba, which costs millions and millions of dollars to manufacture every single year? What do you see? You see mutilated people that are begging to live. 
mutilated people that can't eat and drink. That's not our Islam. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he was asked to change the cloth of the Kaaba, he said the poor people are more worthy of being clothed and being fed than the Kaaba. Because the Prophet ﷺ, he says, مَا أَطْحَرُكِ How pure are you? مَا أَعْظَمُكِ How great are you? But I swear that the ard, the honor, the blood, the property of a believer is more sacred to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than you. That's not our Islam. Our Islam doesn't neglect the, the things around us and just worry about the rituals. The, the Kaaba at the time of the Prophet ﷺ was not this amazing, beautiful structure. The Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ was not beautiful because of all the mist and all of the fans and, and the, you know, the roofs that retract. The Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ didn't even have a roof. The Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ didn't even have a carpet. They prayed on dirt. That wasn't what made the Masjid special. And it wasn't what made the Messenger of Allah ﷺ special. Before Islam, he was a social activist. The youngest man, what does that tell you about him? He was far beyond his peers. In his 20s, the Prophet ﷺ was standing with the elders of his tribe, putting his hand on the Kaaba and ensuring that the rights of people would be respected. And the Prophet ﷺ said, if I was called to that again after Islam, I would join it. Even with people of shirk, even with people of polytheism, I would join them to ensure the rights of people. The Prophet ﷺ was not a pacifist. Rasulullah ﷺ spoke up. The Prophet ﷺ was an activist. He was a sadiq al-ameen. He was a man that was trusted. He cared about the dunya of people. And that's why when he stood up ﷺ to call people to goodness in the akhirah, they trusted him. Those that believed in him, trusted him. Because they knew that the Messenger ﷺ was a man that tried to rectify their affairs in this world. So surely he was trying to rectify their affairs in the hereafter as well. This was the Islam of the Messenger ﷺ. And Rasulullah ﷺ, even after Islam, yes, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ بَسَّامًا ضُحَّاكًا The Prophet ﷺ was smiling and laughing. The Prophet ﷺ was gentle. And Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she says, I never once saw the Prophet become angry for himself. But you know what? She said, when the boundaries of Allah were crossed, he would become more angry than anyone else. He would become angry for Allah. The Prophet would not become unethical. The Prophet ﷺ in his anger would not curse. The Prophet ﷺ in his anger would not insult anyone. But the Prophet ﷺ would take a firm stance against injustice. Whether it was in the form of Bilal ﷺ coming to the Prophet ﷺ and complaining that, that, that Abu Dhar ﷺ insulted him, Rasulullah ﷺ didn't take that lightly. He went to Abu Dhar ﷺ and he admonished him. Or it was in the form of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha being insulted. The Prophet ﷺ got mad for Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. Or it was in the form of a group of people being transgressed or having their rights taken away from them. The Prophet ﷺ got angry. And you know what? So did Jesus ﷺ. Isa ﷺ was not a passive man. And subhanAllah Allah Azza wa Jal, 
he refutes this idea of Isa alayhi salam in the Quran. Qala inni abdullah atani al-kitab waj'alani nabiyya waj'alani mubarakan aynama kunt. The first words of Isa alayhi salam when he spoke from the cradle were what? Inni abdullah. I am the servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Atani al-kitab. Allah gave me a book and he made me a prophet. Waj'alani mubarakan aynama kunt. And Allah made me blessed wherever I may be. Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, Mubarakan ayna ma kunt, to be blessed wherever I may be, means bil amr bil ma'roof wa nahi anil munkar. That wherever Isa alayhi salam went, he stopped, he enjoined good and he forbade evil. Awsani bil salati wa zakati ma dumtu hayya. He enjoined me with prayer and with charity. Ma dumtu hayya, as long as I am alive and I am not shy about demanding that from people. Isa alayhi salam, the image of Isa alayhi salam, that Isa alayhi salam was just someone that walked the streets gently and just smiled at people and just said, it's okay, keep doing your injustices, keep wronging people. Just believe in me as the son of God. This is a flawed image. It contradicts even the image of Isa alayhi salam in the Bible. Isa alayhi salam, when he walks in the temple and he sees people cheating in the temple, what does he do? He flips tables. That's biblical. He flips tables. They didn't, you know, they hated him because Isa alayhi salam was such a strong voice. You know, he was seen as a political threat as well as a threat to their theology. Isa alayhi salam called them out on their on their religious hierarchies that that Ustad Naaman was addressing earlier on today. He called them out. That's not the Christianity of Isa alayhi salam. It's not the Islam of Isa alayhi salam. The Islam of Isa who is described as a rahmah for the world, as a mercy to the world. The Islam of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam who is described, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We have not sent you except as a mercy to all the worlds. Was an Islam that rectifies the affairs not only of the self or the family or the community, but of the world around them. It's an Islam that addresses all of these issues. It's an Islam that demands one to change his own self as well as his society. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِقَوْمٍ حَتَّى يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ Another ayah that's frequently misunderstood, that verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not change the condition of a people until they change the condition of themselves. This doesn't mean that you just sit back and say, let me work on my own taqwa, and then everything will be okay in the ummah. No, that means that, you know what, if I'm guilty of dhulm, if I'm a transgressor in my own right, yesterday there was a sister that was asking about being beaten in her home. If I'm beating my wife at home, then I don't need to be looking at the TV and looking at Bashar al-Assad. I need to look in the mirror. I need to worry about the dhalim in me, the transgressor within me. If I wrong my kids, if I cheat people in my business, I need to worry about that. And if I'm complaining about Sisi in Egypt, or Bashar in Syria, or whoever they may be, I need to make sure that if I was in that situation, I would not be just like them. Because the fact of the matter is, that when you look at societies, Muslim societies, you find theft, you find, you find cheating. Right? I always tell people this, that the first time you meet a Muslim in the masjid, religious and practicing. You say, MashaAllah. Then when you deal with them outside of the masjid, that MashaAllah quickly becomes Astaghfirullah. What happened to you? I thought he was religious. I thought she was great. Right? Man, I was wrong about you. 
And many of us, when we complain about these rulers and these leaders, we would do the exact same thing if we were in those situations. I need to rectify my own affairs. I need to rectify the affairs of my family. That does not mean that I become neglectful of the ummah around me and I don't worry about the causes around me. You know, the Salaf, they used to have a dua that they used to say. And subhanAllah, this is narrated by Imam al-Muzani rahimahullah ta'ala and others. He said that the Salaf, they used to say, Allahumma naqqina min al-dhunubi wal-khataya lati takbisu dua Wa naqqina min al-dhunubi wal-khataya lati tanzilu al-bala'a. Incredible dua. Oh Allah, purify us from the sins that cause our supplications to not be answers. And purify us from the sins that cause hardship and tribulation to come upon the Ummah of Muhammad When I see what's going on in Gaza, when I see an earthquake take place somewhere, I don't say to myself, that was Allah punishing those people because they used to do this and this and that. You know, subhanAllah, it's interesting because I'm from New Orleans. And I mentioned yesterday Hurricane Katrina. And I remember when Hurricane Katrina took place, unfortunately, many mashayikh, I was hearing their khutbas, they said Allah punished New Orleans because of Mardi Gras. Clearly, that's Allah's wisdom for doing this. That's why it happened. Allah punished New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And I thought to myself, how idiotic and stupid do you have to be to say something like that? And subhanAllah, there are two streets in New Orleans for a few days of the year that are full of fahsha, that are full of corruption, that are full of what you guys have here, the carnival, right? We have two streets in New Orleans, a few days of the year, that are like that. And you know what? The French Quarter where that takes place was the least affected area in Hurricane Katrina. Explain that to me. Explain that to me. The people that were killed in Hurricane Katrina and that died were people that lived in the poorest neighborhoods. And I don't want to talk about the levees busting and who was behind that and why poor neighborhoods were flooded while the rich neighborhoods were saved. But there were poor people that died. You don't look at that and say, ah, Allah is punishing them because of that. No, when hardship befalls the ummah, what have I done? Because Allah says, dahr al-fasada, al-barri wal-bahr. That verily corruption has appeared on the land and on the sea. Because of what man's hands have earned. Not because of those people. When I see what happens in Palestine, I don't say that the people of Palestine must be really messed up because Allah is testing them severely. When I see what happens in Syria, I don't say that, oh, this is because they started listening to this type of music and that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them. When I see a tsunami take place somewhere, I don't say, well, that's because of what happens on the beaches there. You don't know Allah's wisdom. You don't know why Allah's doing things. And that's actually the last talk for tonight is why does Allah? You don't know. You have no clue. But what you do know is that when hardship falls upon the ummah, it's you and I that we need to look at. We need to look at ourselves. We need to look at ourselves. Because of the hadith that I mentioned earlier. When people see evil and they don't do, do anything about it, the wrath of Allah befalls them collectively. Even the Prophet ﷺ had to suffer. Because 40 men of this ummah that were told to stay on the Mount of Rumah, the mount of the, the hill of the archers, and not come down until the Prophet ﷺ gave them the order to do so. Those 40 men, the Prophet ﷺ said to them, even if you see us being cut up into pieces, do not come down until I give you the order to do so. And when the Prophet ﷺ and the believers 
earned what they thought to be a victory in the battle of Uhud, the people on that hill, many of them, they looked down and they said, wait a minute, they're going to distribute the spoils of war amongst themselves. The battle is clearly over. The Muslims have clearly won. And they disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ. And because of that, even the face of the Prophet ﷺ was struck. Blood fell from his mouth ﷺ. Because of a group of this ummah disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how about when you have millions of the ummah of Muhammad ﷺ disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Of course the ummah will suffer. Of course people will, will struggle. That doesn't mean that Allah hates them and He loves you. That's a reminder to the ummah collectively to wake up. Because even on that day of Uhud, what did Umar ibn al-Khattab say? Umar anhu, as the Prophet was called out, and Umar was called out, and Abu Bakr was called out, when Abu Sufyan called out to them and said, do you have amongst you Rasulullah Is Muhammad still amongst you? Is he alive? And they were quiet. And they said, Afikum Abu Bakr, and is Abu Bakr amongst you? And they were quiet. Afikum Umar, is Umar amongst you? And they were quiet. And subhanAllah, this shows you the status of Abu Bakr and Umar, that even the enemies of Islam knew, is Abu Bakr or Umar still amongst you? And Rasulullah he tells Umar to answer one thing. They call out and they say, a day of Uhud for the day of Badr. Our dead have been avenged. You're dead for our dead. And Rasulullah tells Umar anhu to answer. And Umar anhu answers. And he says, Allahu mawlana wa la mawla lakum. Allah is our protector. You have no protector. Our dead are in Jannah. Your dead are in hellfire. SubhanAllah. Even then, they understand. No, no, no. Our shuhada are blessed. They wouldn't want to come back for the blink of an eye to this world. They're blessed. But as an ummah, we do need to reevaluate ourselves. As an ummah, we need to make sure that we are not doing anything to cause hardship upon the ummah around us. But at the same time, we understand that when Allah tests a specific group of this ummah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is blessing them with shahada. That Allah azawajal is testing them in accordance with their capacity. And that we are being tested in accordance with our capacity as well. Dear brothers and sisters, when we look at our own personal lives, and we look at the world around us, a lot of times we've restricted religiosity to the set of rituals, and I want to just come back to this and end on this point. And subhanAllah, there's a very famous hadith. You might have heard this hadith. How many of you, and I want to actually see a show of hands. How many of you have heard of the hadith? Alright, no one raised their hands. Just wanted to make sure. How many of you have heard of the hadith of the woman that saw a thirsty dog and provided water for that dog? Raise your hand. Most of you have heard of the hadith. You know, I often think to myself that this woman, who the Prophet ﷺ says, was walking and she was thirsty and Allah provided water to her. As she saw a thirsty dog, Rasulullah says there was a thought process. She thought to herself, Allah provided for me when I was thirsty, so I should provide for that dog when it is thirsty. And she took her shoe and she filled it with water and she provided for that dog and so Allah forgave her for her sins. And I think to myself, I say, you know what? What would a religious person do today? You were thirsty some water and you started drinking, 
Then a dog came and you said, Astaghfirullah, najas, impure, kicked the dog and told it to go away. And you thought you were being religious by doing so. That's our understanding of religion. That's what we've restricted it to. But Rasulullah tells us the thought process of that woman. Hey, Allah provided for me. I should provide for that creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Man la yarham la yurham. Whoever does not show mercy will not have mercy shown to them. And that's why she was forgiven. Her process or the way she processed religion was entirely different from the way 99% of religious people process religion. Most people will see it in a very limited, naive fashion. They won't process it that way. Allah did not send us a religion like that. Allah sent us a religion that makes us responsible for everything that goes on around us. It makes us responsible for the people all over the world. And you know, subhanAllah, I was traveling actually, some of you might have seen online. Last weekend, I was with Tariq Abu Khudair. Do any of you know who Tariq Abu Khudair is? Tariq Abu Khudair was the young teenager who was beaten in Palestine, in Palestine. One week after, or actually a few days after, his, his cousin, his first cousin, Muhammad Abu Khudair, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon him and grant his family ease and grant him shahada. Muhammad Abu Khudair, a 15-year-old, was taken, he was kidnapped by six Israelis, one of them a rabbi. And they made him drink gasoline. And they stabbed him over 50 times. And as he woke up from that gasoline, they then covered his body in gasoline. And he spit in the face of the rabbi. And they set him on fire and killed him. Tariq was protesting the shahada, the martyrdom of his cousin. And the Israeli police, the IDF, they took him and they beat him brutally, slamming his head against the concrete, even as he was unconscious. And subhanAllah, then he woke up, can you imagine a 15-year-old that grew up in the United States? He woke up in an Israeli prison blindfolded. Can you imagine the, the terror and the horror that he was facing? He woke up blindfolded in an Israeli prison. For six hours, they did not remove that blindfold. And when he was taken to a hospital, because he had internal bleeding, all kinds of things happened to him, they wouldn't even let his parents see him. And subhanAllah, as he returns home, he's placed on house arrest. Not only is he insulted and placed on house arrest and his family insulted, they get a bill from the IDF, the dry cleaning bill of the Israeli soldiers for the blood they got on their uniforms as they beat him almost to death. How disgusting of a people are these people? They sent the parents a dry cleaning bill because they got blood on their clothes almost killing their son. And they made them pay it. And I was talking to Talik and you can imagine the trauma that this young boy went through. And I was with him for two days this last weekend. We had a voluntary two fundraisers for Gaza. SubhanAllah, as I was sitting with him, I could see a young American teen, like so many others, that one day was concerned with selfies and, and was concerned with whether or not his clothes were matching, whether or not his shoes were up to par, whether or not he had certain games. But now, the harsh reality of this world awakened him to something else. It awakened him to his purpose. And you know, subhanAllah, he was sitting and he said that when I was in the hospital, and then I was thrown back into the prison, I asked the other Palestinians, 
So is this what you guys go through? And they said, we're used to this on a daily basis. We are routinely kidnapped and beaten and thrown into prisons. And he said, I'd heard my entire life about the oppression of the Palestinian people. But now I experienced just a taste of it and had it not been caught on video and not spread throughout social media, then no one would have cared about him. And had he not been an American teen, he still would have been in prison and he probably would have been killed. Dear brothers and sisters, that young boy now travels around the country educating people about the cause of Palestine. That young boy's priorities have been completely shifted. He now thinks about the ummah. And you know how many young people in Syria before Bashar started his massacre of his own people? You know how many young people in Syria probably used to wake up in the morning every day and worry about whether or not they had the right amount of gel in their hair? And worry about whether or not they were going to impress the girl at school? And then now they were striving for their lives. And now they're worried about saving their homes and protecting their families. The harsh circumstances of this world forced them to readjust. It forced them to rethink their priorities. And to think about an ummah greater than them. And you know what, dear brothers and sisters, before Allah forces us into situations like that, before Allah forces us into circumstances like that, when people come to me and they tell me that my child, my teenager, all they do is they watch pornography, waste, waste away on social media, waste away on games, I can't get them off of drugs, I can't get them to pray. And I remember hadith of the Prophet a man came to the Prophet and said, My heart has been hardened. Rasulullah told him, You should accompany an orphan and you should caress his head. Caressing the head, the literal meaning is to caress the head. It means acquaint yourself with people that are less fortunate. Acquaint yourself with the orphans. Acquaint yourself with the problems around the world with your brothers and sisters all over, with your brothers and sisters locally, with the homeless people and the displaced locally. Acquaint yourself with those circumstances, with those situations, with those people. And your heart will naturally be softened. Because the world is no longer all about you. It's no longer nafsi nafsi in this world. It's about something greater than you. And if you want to tame your nafs, attach it to a cause that is greater than itself. Attach it to something that is greater than its shahawat than just its desires. So when I go online, I'm not going to waste away on idle things. You know what? I'm going to read the news. And I will be grieved. And I will think action and solution. What can I do to change it? I'll be interested in what's going on around me. Interested in the world. Interested in changing this world. Because the world doesn't revolve around me. And subhanAllah, when you're in that state of mind, you know, I, Wallahi, I, I, I always remember my father. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and preserve him. I remember subhanAllah when, when the issue of Bosnia took place, he adopted a family from Bosnia and put him in an apartment right next to us. And we used to go daily and take groceries to them. The refugees from... And we couldn't even speak their language. We couldn't even understand what they were saying and they couldn't understand us. But we'd go take our groceries and he told us, you know, take your, your gaming consoles. Back then it was Nintendo and Super Nintendo. Things have changed. Take your Super Nintendo over. Play Super Mario with them. Hook up your Super Nintendo. Hook up your Sega. Play with them. Try to talk to them. Try to communicate to them. What do you want to buy them today? 
What do you want to take for them today? SubhanAllah, as we would go there, Wallahi, I would be too embarrassed to ask my dad to buy me a new pair of shoes. I'm seeing these young people that were just like me, teenagers, and here they are, and they're in a country that they don't know. They've lost their parents, and they're in a foreign place, and they're living in an apartment that they don't... I mean, they're, they're, look at where they are. How can I then have the nerve to ask for a new pair of sneakers? The world wasn't about me anymore. It changed my entire perspective on things. I had a connection to the crisis in Bosnia. I had a connection to the issues in the Ummah. And that purified my heart as a young teenager. SubhanAllah, in those moments, I never felt closer to Allah as a teenager than those moments. Wallahi. And I remember that slowly as they moved on and we moved on, I started going back to what every teenager goes back to. Acquaint yourself with the issues of the Ummah. And that way, when you commit a sin, not only will you feel guilty because you wronged yourself and you did not appreciate Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings upon you, you will feel like you betrayed the Ummah. And that will cause you to desist. That will cause you to hold back. Because when you break the lid of that bottle to drink, when you go party, when you commit that sin, when you sit in that gathering, when you dress the way you do, when you act the way you do, you are causing hardship to the Ummah. I don't want to bring that hardship to the Ummah. The Ummah deserves more from me. I owe them. I should be helping them. I should be concerned about them. I should be making dua for them. You know, subhanAllah, most of us have made more dua for our, our new houses and our new cars and our, and our very trivial things in life than we have for people that are being killed all over the world. And wallahi, that's a faith crisis. You know, when you're more concerned about your sports team losing a game than 600, 700 people being massacred, that's a crisis of iman. That's a crisis of humanity. I need to acquaint myself. And I want to leave you all with a story, a very powerful story. How many of you have heard the name Abu Mihjan al-Thaqafi? Not many of you. Maybe one or two of you in this entire audience. Abu Mihjan al-Thaqafi, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, was a companion of the Prophet And he was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. And when he and subhanAllah, he, he even used to write poetry about his khamr, about his alcohol. And one of the things in his wasiyah, I'm not even making this up, this is actually narrated by Al-Qurtubi. One of the things in his wasiyah, in his will to his children, he said, if I die, I want you to soak my grave with khamr so that my bones can absorb it. You imagine? Talk about an addict. Even when I die, soak my bones in khamr so that they can, they can absorb it in my death and make death easier for me. He even had a qasida for it. Now when he became Muslim, he had a very hard time kicking his alcohol habit. And subhanAllah, he was present in the battles with the Prophet ﷺ. He was with the Ummah, but he would routinely be lashed. Similar to Nu'iman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Nu'iman ibn Amr, routinely be lashed because he kept getting caught drunk. And this was something that continued even through the khilaf of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, even as he became an old man in the khilaf of Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu. Then in the khilaf of Umar ibn al-Khattab as the Muslims were at war with the Persians in the battle of Qadisiyah, as they were fighting that great oppressor of Kisra, 
subhanAllah, liberating even the people of Persia from their ruler and from their emperor. The battle of Qadisiyah, which was one of the most important battles in Islamic history. He was drunk again. And Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was the commander of the army. He had to lash him again. And then when the battle of Qadisiyah started, you know what the punishment of Abu Mahjan was? You will be chained up while we go fight the battle of Qadisiyah. Your punishment is that you don't get to go out and fight against the Persians and serve your ummah. Like imagine if you were in that situation. Like okay, what a great punishment, right? Allah Musta'an, I hope you guys do well. You're outnumbered eight to one. You're fighting an army with elephants. <laughs> but inshallah khair. Oh well, I'll have to stay here chained up. Astaghfirullah. Can't do anything about it. No. Abu Mihjan cried and cried and cried. And he begged Sa'id radiallahu ta'ala anhu, do not forbid me from serving Allah. Can you imagine? Like I know I messed up. Give me another chance. Don't forbid me from serving Allah. I know I have a problem with khamr. But don't forbid me from serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dear brothers and sisters, some of you are addicted to pornography. Some of you are addicted to a sin. But you still love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you love the Messenger sallallahu But the problem is that you're not allowing that love of Allah and His Messenger to do away with that sin. It doesn't mean you don't love Allah and His Messenger. It doesn't mean that. But you need to kick the habit. You need to put it aside. And remember, it's ittiba' that Allah wants from you. Following that Allah wants from you. So Sa'ad radiallahu anhu said, Look, I can't deal with you anymore. I'll deal with you after the battle of Qadisiyah. So he ties up Abu Mihjan in a chamber right next to his house. And as he leaves for the battle of Qadisiyah, the wife of Sa'ad radiallahu anhu, Salma radiallahu ta'ala anha, Salma radiallahu anha, she hears Abu Mihjan crying loudly. So she thinks to herself that something happened to him. So she runs to the chamber to see where, what, what happened with Abu Mihjan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And she says, what's wrong? Mabik. And he started to say again, لا تحرمني من خدمة الله. Don't forbid me from serving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let me go and fight with them. Salma said, how am I supposed to let you go fight with them? My husband, who was the commander of the army, he tied you up. What's, gonna, what's going to get you to, you know, what, what will assure me that you will come back? And so he said, I swear by Allah, if you let me go, I will wrap my face, I will serve in the battle of Qadisiyah, I will come back, I will tie myself back up, and I will never tell anyone what I did. And you know what? She believed him. She saw the ikhlas, and that's just the philosophy of the mu'min, the insight of the believer, the person. He, she could see the truthfulness in what Abu Mihjan was saying. So she freed Abu Mihjan. He went to the battle of Qadisiyah, he wrapped his face, and he fought so bravely that Sa'ad radiallahu anhu, as he was watching the battle, he was wondering, who is this man? And so after the battle was over, Sa'ad radiallahu anhu gathered, and he said, where is, the, where is the warrior that had his face wrapped? Where is he at so that we can nuthni alayhi, so he can praise him and we can reward him, make dua for him? And no one came forward. So Sa'ad radiallahu anhu was confused. He was back. Who was that man? Abu Mihjan went back to Salma. He tied himself back up. And he never told anyone. Sa'ad radiallahu anhu, he came back from the battle of Qadisiyah and he came back to his wife. You know, you come back home from a long day at work. 
what happened at work today? Oh, you know, I ran into a rude customer. With Sa'ad radiallahu anhu, you know what happened at work today? We were in the battle of Qadisiyah. <laughs> and he's saying there was this man that had his face wrapped. And by the way, a side note, this shows you that the Sahaba, they used to talk to their spouses about the affairs of the Ummah. It wasn't just worry about cooking food for tonight, I'm tired, it was a long battle. Everyone was concerned about the Ummah. The husbands, the wives, the children. So Sa'ad is telling her about the battle of Qadisiyah. And says that there was this man that came and he had his face wrapped. And that fought so bravely. And when I called and asked people who he was, no one came forward. And she said, do you want to know who that was? That was your prisoner, Abu Mihjan. Sa'ad radiallahu anhu was so shocked. Said, how did he come? I tied him up. She said, I let him go. And he came back. So Sa'ad radiallahu anhu entered upon Abu Mihjan. And he was breathing hard. And he had wounds all over his body. And Sa'ad radiallahu anhu, he started to cry. And he hugged Abu Mihjan. And he said in the ear of Abu Mihjan, he said, Wallahi, I will never lash you again, even if you drink. <laughs> like after this action of yours, and, and of course he was saying it as a means of expression. Right? If he went and drunk again, the had would be a stop. But I can't lash you ever again. And Abu Mihjan, he cried. And he said, Ya Sa'ad. He said, Oh Sa'ad. Wallahi, I will never return to drinking alcohol again. And he never did. He never did. You know why? Because he realized that there was a cause that was greater than him. I don't have time to worry about my khamr and my sins and these trivial things in life. I've got an ummah that has expectations of me. And we as an ummah, Allah Azzawajal has expectations of us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us a people who enjoin good and forbid evil within themselves and within their homes, within their communities, and within their ummah. Allahumma ameen. Aqulu qawli hadha. Wa astaghfirullah li wa lakum. Wa li sa'ir al-muslimin. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.